and welcome to the November instalment of the Shameless Book Club. This month, we read Coco Mella's best-selling debut novel, Cleopatra and Frankenstein. The book follows 24-year-old British artist Cleo, whose chance meeting with a man called Frank, who is some 20 years older than her, changes the course of both of their lives. In Frank, Cleo finds a future where she can paint, be happy, and, well, land a green card. When the darkest parts of them meet each other, Frank and Cleo are forced to reckon with their own demons, what it means to be their best selves, and what it is they actually want out of their future. Joining me today to chat about this very hyped book is podcast producer Annabelle Lee. Hello. And content coordinator Sahani Gunatilika. Hello. Hello, team. I'm very excited to chat to you both about this one. Mish is on leave, of course. Sahani, stoked to have you here. I'm happy to be here. I know. Well, it sounds like we were happy to prep this one. We were yeah. all looking forward to it. Lots so of notes today. We have so many notes. We have so much to talk about. Annabelle, I might start with you today. We're going to start where we always start, which is to have a conversation both about... Coco Mellors as an author and also kind of the hype around this book because there's been heaps, as we said. Yeah, for sure. Let's start from the start of Coco's life. All right, take me there. she grew up in both England and America. She grew up in London, I'm pretty sure, and then she moved to New York, which does explain the inclusion of both of those places in the book, I think. She then went on to get an MFA in fiction from New York University. She has had her work published in The Cut, The Stack, the New York Times Modern Love column, which we love. We do love that one into a TV show, as we know, and she's currently writing her second novel. Yeah, which I'm also excited for because I do feel somewhat sorry for authors who have such cracking debut novels because the second one's always a little hard to follow up with. So, honey, what did you find out about Coco when you were digging? Well, I couldn't find many interviews with her. Yes. Yeah, but I did find that her mum was a therapist. Yeah. Yeah. And there is so much therapy speak in this book, so I wasn't surprised at all. But I did see an article in the LA Times. It was a review And the review was titled A Debut Novel of Love and Privilege That's Made for TV. And I thought that was a good thing. And I read the actual article and the implication wasn't like that. Yes. Yes. I read this one as well. I did too. What did you guys think? Those kinds of reviews make me feel a bit silly or stupid because I thought this was a beautiful glittery book that had a lot of substance. Like the characters themselves seemed pretty glittery, but there was a lot going on under the surface. And I thought that is perfect for TV because you can imagine it's going to look beautiful, right? And that's the kind of TV that I want to watch. So in my mind, I think that's perfect. But as you say, the implication in this review was that's kind of a shit thing. Yeah. May I read you guys a passage from the review? Yes, you may. I actually have this written down in the strengths and weaknesses section of this chat, but I'm going to read it now. Lorraine Berry, which is the writer of this piece, said, but the type of enlightenment presented in certain novels in which easy access to money makes chasing one's art a matter only of finding oneself ignores a world on fire with chaos and inequality and it tends to not make for great TV either. So her point was basically that like this book is steeped in privilege. It's not a very holistic representation of the world. What do we make of that? Do we think that every book has to touch on like all of the inequality that goes on in the world? Yeah, I just, I disagree. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Like I think it looks at the flash and glamour of New York really well, the uh, like the review. But I don't. Th- I think it neglects how she does go deeper. Yeah, like, yeah. I just, I just don't agree. <laughs> I don't agree either. And I'm like, I don't think every book or TV show can possibly portray the wide range of things, fire, chaos, as that review said, that happens in the world. But also, I was like, it, it kind of crosses a fair spectrum of stuff. Yeah, this book. 
I agree with you, Sahani. I think it was pretty interesting that Coco's mom was a therapist because I think that would naturally give you a unique insight into people or analyzing people and observing people, which I think she kind of fleshed out characters really well in this book. And I think that has to be a skill that comes from that. The other thing that really, really struck me was when I was reading the acknowledgements of the book, Coco wrote an acknowledgement to, and I quote, the sober community of downtown New York who really did love me until I loved myself. I am here because you carried me. There's something so incredibly moving about reading a novel where the characters are struggling very deeply with things and then you get to the acknowledgements and you realise that that was such a moving part of the book because it was so realistic because it was the author's own struggle too. Like I was very, very moved by that. I also love it when people write about their relationship with places cities and stuff yeah it's just like this weird I don't know what it is about it but it's like maybe it's because we all love Melbourne so much and I feel like it's quite beautiful when you hear people write about that kind of love yeah like a love letter to the cities they grew up in I also found it really really interesting that and I wonder what you guys think about this and we do tend to talk about this a lot in book club but the Sunday Times wrote a review of this book saying move over Sally Rooney this is the hottest new book And we do speak on this show a lot about how every young female writer is compared to Sally Rooney, but I couldn't feel like this is less Sally Rooney-like in its, you know, structure, in how it sounds. But also I just despise that sense of like move over Sally Mm. Rooney as if there's only room for like one young female author who's doing well. Yes, Yes. like don't go anywhere, Sally. We can all be Mm. here. We can all be here. But I found that this book was much darker. Like maybe if you read the first chapter, you'd maybe like predict it could go into Sally Rooney territory. But I feel like the actual crux of this book was really dark, much Mm. darker than Sally's stuff. And if you're talking about cities, Sally Rooney is like, Irish like it's completely different yeah Yeah. and there's a lot more glitz and glamour in this compared to Sally there's like no glitz and glamour in Sally Rooney's book yes like it's pretty pared back so Mm. I found that kind of annoying the other thing that I want to know from both of you is this book has been optioned by Warner Brothers to be made into a television series would you watch it absolutely yes yes for sure why even though I did find flaws in this book. Oh, spoiler. <laughs> I felt like the dialogue was perfect for TV, which is something that mm. Lorraine, that critic of the book, wrote about, but she said it in a negative way, mm. that this book seemed like it was crafted to be a TV adaption, I think she was saying. Mm. I felt like the writing was so clear to me and the whole time I was picturing like every scene in my head, but I was like, no, I say this on every book club. I always say every book I read on this book club, I can picture it in my mind. But this I actually did think all scenes were very vivid. Yeah, I thought the dialogue was really snappy as well and the way she like I can picture New York like I've only been there like once but I can I feel like I'm there yeah I agree with that I could see it all and I think this leads us pretty nicely to a conversation about characters because I want to ask you both about the characters you loved about the characters you despised about the characters you felt were more fleshed out Mm. than others so Hani I'll start with you where do you want to start what character do you want to start with and do you like them or hate them you have so much freedom here (laughs) say what you want to say I'm going to start with Rank. Yeah, good stuff. Um, I love characters that I normally hate. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. Like characters that you'd hate in real life. Yeah, well, I feel like he's like the embodiment of like the patriarchy, Frank. Like I just, I despise him, but I find him really, really interesting. And I like that she really deconstructs why I don't like him. Yeah. <laughs> if that makes sense. So there's like so many references to Frank not wanting to grow up and It was like initially quite a bit of an eye roll because it's such a cliche, but I I ended up feeling really sorry for him. Yeah. Because like 
it was almost like he was stuck in like purgatory. Yeah, like growing up and maturing, there's the beauty behind that. And you like learn empathy and you learn to care and nurture for others. And he really like, it's like he couldn't attain that. Yeah. And it's no surprise then I think that we're opening the book with him meeting a 24 year old and like falling (laughs) in love with her. Yeah. What do you think about Frank, Annabelle? I, at the beginning, loved Frank and didn't quite like Cleo. And then over time that switched. Yeah. Over time I grew fonder and fonder of Cleo because she was immature. Yes, as was Frank, but she was young. Like her Mm. age showed us that she was young. Whereas Frank didn't have anything else to rely on. Like he had no emotional intelligence for someone of his age. I just found him so insufferable, especially Especially in that last argument that he had with Cleo, (gasps) Mm. where he was absolutely reluctant to admit fault and to like actually listen to Cleo when she was voicing all of the pain that she'd struggled with during her relationship with him. Mm -hmm. There's a passage that I want to read from Frank and Cleo. So Frank goes, look, I get it, Cleo. I'm the asshole. I'm the corporate clown. I'm the bad guy who fucked up your life. And then Cleo responds and says, don't do that. Don't victimize yourself under the guise of taking responsibility. That's not an apology. That's self-pity. And that perfectly summed up Frank. Have you ever had an argument with someone where they do that? Yes. 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 I think this argument was bang on because I think if you've ever had an argument argument with someone who is so incredibly absolute in the way that they argue Mm. you feel like you're banging your head against a wall and it doesn't matter how smart you are in that argument like Cleo is because she is really clever in that argument and really Mm. emotionally astute you're not going to get anywhere like it takes two people to have a really productive argument so I agree with that but then I also kind of feel like why don't I hate him like why (laughs) did I find Cleo harder to read than Frank because he's charismatic yes I Mm. yes yes and I was a sucker for the charisma (laughs) I I could kind of picture him and I thought he'd be the kind of guy in real life who I would see is deeply flawed and kind of annoying and I'd have an arm's length. Like he's not the kind of guy I'd date or marry, but I'd kind of happily have in my orbit because I'm like, oh, yeah. but soft spot for them. Yeah, like he's <laughs> like, a fun friend. Like that kind of vibe. Yeah. I, I struggled with Cleo more. I didn't dislike her by any stretch, but I think I did find her immaturity frustrating, which I know is the entire point of the book, <laughs> right? Yeah. I know that's exactly what's meant to happen, but I did struggle with that in the same way that I actually struggled with Quentin, which is kind of a hard thing mm. to admit because he had so many things internally that he was struggling with and so, you know, many mental health issues that he was struggling with. I totally understood that he was a complex guy. But I also, given his role in this book, is Cleo's friend. Like that is how we know him. I found him to be a pretty shit friend. Mm, So selfish. Super selfish. And there's like nothing more frustrating than when someone gets into a relationship and the the other friend, the single friend on the outer. Actually, he wasn't even single. That's the annoying part. Yeah. Kept reminding them of how she'd left him behind. And I read this quote from that LA Times review that we keep coming back to that I actually think really summarised why maybe I preferred the older characters in this book to the younger ones. And the the line reads, the younger characters are all creative and struggling to find themselves. The older ones are people who had found the intersection between creativity and economy who made beautiful things but did not suffer for it. Mm. Is that a quote from the book? Yeah, yeah. Yeah. She had that in Mm. quotes from the book. And I thought, yeah, it's definitely that. Like I, I can't handle this like hopeless romance that some of the young characters have about life. I'm like, just... Find your sense of realism and move on. But that quote about the older characters in this book, that was like why I found them more annoying because it was never really depicted in the book 
how they actually got to where they were, how they became that successful. Yeah. It just seemed like, like I'm sure there was work involved, <laughs> but it just seemed like they got to this point where they had all the money in the world and just kind of threw it away at whatever. Whereas the younger ones at least seemed to be like semi-struggling. Yeah, but they're 20 years to get to that point. Like, yeah. they're all, like, 20 years older than Cleo. Mm. Yeah, well, like, I just, with Cleo, like, she's 24. She's our age. Like, I know we keep talking about her as, like, a really young person. But, like, I'm the same age and I think I have, like, a higher emotional capacity than she does. Yeah. yeah. And, you definitely do. Yeah. <laughs> but that being said, I did empathise with her more than Frank because I just think there's a higher expectation for women to be more mature and yeah, more empathetic. Absolutely. So I was like, I felt more bad for her. Yeah. Also, she had people like Quentin in her circles. Like mm. it makes sense to why she kind of had like a hard time. Yeah, for yeah. sure. You know what I also find really interesting and I'm keen to hear what you guys think about this is I didn't care enough about the other characters in the book. And I think this was a weakness for me. Sorry to kind of skip ahead <laughs> to talk about a weakness. But I think this was a weakness for me in that when I read the blurb of the book, I got the sense when it was being set up for me that we were going to follow Cleo and Frank, but that Zoe and Quentin were going to have really kind of sizable roles because that is what the blurb told me. And then they kind of were nothing but little side pieces who we would occasionally go into their lives and get like a taster and then run on out. And I was like a bit confused because I thought either be a main character and take me into their world or leave them as a side character and don't take me there. But that kind of duality really confused me. See, I had that written down as a strength. Yeah, right. I really like that. I think that really highlighted how self-absorbed Frank and Cleo were, that they were so blind to the lives of the people around them. Like, even though they were both going through, like, Quentin was literally going through, like, a huge sexuality change. And Zoe was having, like, real... She called her body defective. Yeah. They were both going through extreme, like, life-altering events. And they were so self-absorbed that they didn't even see that. They didn't have any idea what was going on in the people that they care about's lives. So I actually liked it because I think it fit the story well. Yeah. yeah. That's a really good point. No, it's a great point. But then the other part of me is like, I found Zoe and Quentin kind of self-absorbed too. Yeah. No, but maybe that's the whole point. Like maybe that's why we went there. I sit somewhere in between both of you. Yeah. I didn't find Quentin and Zoe's storylines distracting, but I wanted them to be tied up at the end. I was like, what happens with Zoe and that, that sugar daddy guy? Yeah. What happens with Quentin and this Alex guy? Like I wanted answers because we got answers for Frank and Cleo, but we didn't get them for any other characters. I thought Zoe was pretty tied up, though, in the sense that, like, I appreciated that this sugar daddy thing was actually framed as something, like, quite healthy for her. Mm, Like, I appreciate how that was written. It wasn't, like, written too romantically in Mm. my mind, but it also wasn't written with this framing of, like, poor Zoe, she needs to be saved. It was she found a healthy dynamic that Mm. paid her money. I'm like, how great is that? That's true. I agree about the Quentin thing. Like that was hard to read, but I also kind of felt like, unfortunately it was perhaps the most realistic ending. And that's the saddest thing to admit of all, right? Is Mm. that maybe that is where his character's story kind of ends. And that is a hard thing for all of us to grapple with, but maybe that's the most important thing for us to grapple Mm. with because there is often no happy endings for people who are struggling with things that he's struggling with in a world that doesn't make it safe for them. Yeah. Mm. I like the book ending of Quentin's story because at the beginning, you know how you mentioned right after their marriage, he felt quite left behind in their friendship. 
I think like even at the end he was quite left behind compared to the rest of the characters yes but I think that's also like again this is a very touchy topic but because he's so self-absorbed I think that also has to do with it a little bit yeah, it's just a bit sad. Yeah, no, it, like it was also a bit of a slap at the end to yeah. be like, i am got 10 pages to go. They're in Rome, this mm. beautiful romantic spot. It feels like the end of the novel, everything's coming to a climax and then you hear that part of the story and it grounds you quite hugely. I think Eleanor and her mother are clearly the heroes of the book for me. Yeah, Without a doubt, I loved them both. I think my heart like both exploded and shattered into a million pieces when there was a scene between Eleanor and her mother when Eleanor was like why are you still caring for this man who left you for another woman like why are you doing that and it became very clear that her mom was doing that so that Eleanor wasn't left with the burden of just caring for her dad alone and I was like that has got to be the biggest sign of a mother's love that you would put all of that anger and resentment and bitterness behind you to do that for your child. She wasn't doing it for him. She was doing it for her. And I was like, oh. yeah, the bit where Frank is talking to Cleo about how Eleanor is just like, has been so loved all of her life. Yeah. Really got me. Yeah. yeah. And, and it really showed in the character of Eleanor. She was so like mature and level-headed. Although I have a question. Yes. And this is maybe me. Maybe I misread this whole thing. What was with the dead animal stuff? Like her oh, Eleanor was seeing dead, dead animals. Yeah, yes. I was for a second there thinking that this book was going to make a dramatic turn from being like a drama rom-com. I to forgot about horror book I was like what is happening with these dead animals and then they just disappeared because she got contacts <laughs> yeah that's actually very true I just assumed it was like a symptom of maybe like her mental health was going a bit yeah different places and that she had her own struggles but you're right the fact that it was tied up because she got contacts <laughs> is a really good point and as part of the story I just kind of forgot yeah the minute it was I random the book. but yeah, that sure. aside Eleanor was one of my favorite characters I thought she was like very playful and funny and I loved this is again tying back to our chat we're going to have later about strengths and weaknesses but I'm going to say it now I loved how Eleanor's passages were written I really liked it broken up like yeah. that mm. and it was a great way it was told in first person to introduce a new character because there are so many characters in this book I imagine that the audience might have gotten confused with so many introductions and she was an important character and I felt like that was a really great way to very quickly but thoroughly introduce someone so important did you love Eleanor too Sahani yeah well I found her entrance really jarring oh, oh you like what the hell where am I because yeah, I stopped reading like the chapter before and I picked it up later and I was like, am I reading the same book? Yeah. <laughs> it was really strange. But I didn't actually understand why her part was written in the first person. Like, I didn't understand why she did that. I think for, I mean, I'm just speculating here because I'm not the author. <laughs> but I think for me, I love that it was written in first person. And I love that it was written in little vignettes because... I think what we needed, if Frank and Cleo weren't going to end up together, the person that was going to end up with Frank, we needed to love and adore. And I think the the one way to separate her from the pack is to have that first person structure mm. because you're right inside her head. And then you, when you're right inside someone's head, I think you have an overwhelming amount of empathy for them. And if you yeah. have an overwhelming amount of empathy for them, you're rooting for them and you'll end up rooting for her and Frank. Mm. So that's kind of what I thought. Yeah, you're right. I think it was really smart that Coco made quote unquote the other woman have like her inner thoughts 
available to the readers because it was like, oh, well, we're going to love her. Yeah, yeah. yeah. And we, we did love her. Yeah. Like we loved her the most, which I think is actually quite a hard thing to do in a book. So I think she did amazing. One more character before we move on. I want to talk about Santiago. Oh, yes. Because yeah. I had him and Eleanor as my top fave characters, which is kind of, I think, an obvious opinion to have because they were both so kind, yeah. so mature. Yeah. I feel like they were the only two characters in the book that weren't selfish. Yes. yes. I found his storylines quite moving and and he just seemed like he was always the person in both Cleo and Frank's lives who was always there for them, who yeah. actually put other people first and actually thought about how other people were feeling. Yes, he's kind of the character that I looked at and I was like, you're the one I'd want most in my own life. You're the only decent one, yeah. which is like strange because he wasn't like overwhelmingly Mother Teresa. Like, you know what I mean? <laughs> yeah, yeah. Like the things, he, the things he was doing were pretty normal. Probably yeah. the things that we do for each other in our world. But yeah. it was a different world completely. Maybe the bar was just set low and I was like, oh my God, oh my God, San Diego is great. Yeah, yeah, 100%. <laughs> the bare minimum. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> Guys, we're going to talk more about our strengths and weaknesses, even though we've kind of been talking about them the whole time right after the break. All right, Sahani, I want you to tell me now what you think maybe your biggest strength or your favourite part of the book was. Um, I already said my biggest strength. Oh, <laughs> what was that? It was the way it was structured. Oh, yeah. So I love the different perspectives. Yeah. But, yeah, I liked how, like, it wasn't as in-depth with Zoe and with Quentin. But my other biggest strength, I think, was it really showed the importance of empathy. Yeah. Again, we kind of touched on it because we, like, all thought Santiago was a saint and he really didn't do that much. <laughs> but I think it's because, like, all the others were so self-absorbed. And there is a passage I want to read out where Cleo talks about what she thinks love is. And, like, she talks about how a solid partnership is what you need. Oh, yes. Mm. She says, because I realise that's what life really requires. When it gets messy and difficult and unglamorous, that kind of partnership and we don't have that mm. that yes. was so heartbreaking yeah it was really heartbreaking because it's like you can love someone but like that doesn't make it the good relationship always like yeah. or a healthy one and i imagine it would be so hard to voice that because like mm. i feel like in a lot of relationships you want to try and make it work or and- you're delusional yeah if you love someone you convince yourself that you do have that when you don't I think it's also a really beautiful picture, you know, the couple at the airport who are surrounded by chaos, like my nightmare kind of chaos, and who just look at each other and laugh. Because I remember reading that bit being like, yeah, I do really want that. And Mm. I think that's kind of what everybody aspires to in their own long-term relationships. I think for me, I was just like totally obsessed with the first chapter of this book. And I said that when I read it. And then after I'd finished the book, I went back and read it again. And I (laughs) loved it just as much. And I think for me, it sets up the book so beautifully because in many ways, it's like this great tragedy that a couple who meet and have this instant chemistry can't last. They don't even last very long at all. And I'm like, that's a tragedy because it's so rare to find two people who can just connect like that Mm. straight away. And for them to not even be able to last a year or two is a great tragedy. But then I think it's like the most realistic and truthful thing you can write because I think 
that happens all the time everywhere in that chemistry and love as we said it's just not enough yeah mm. I had that down as well I had the first chapter was one of my favorite things in this book I want to read out a passage as you well guys are such romantic. <laughs> <laughs> this passage that I want to read is just like so beautiful and I know that it's not the point of the book like the point it's of okay. the book is the fact that the relationship is like gorgeous but mm. whatever it reads, Frank had once seen an image of a tsunami wave carrying hundreds of species of sea life within it. Sharks and stingrays and schools of silver-backed fish all lifted high in the wave's arc before crashing onto land. His response to her was titanic. Everything in him rose to meet her. Ah, it's good. It's good <laughs> stuff. But I think you said, you know, maybe this is not the point of the book, but in many ways I think it is the point of the book to, to feel that for somebody and then for it to still not be healthy and good for you. So, honey, you were kind of... um. Not eye-rolling, but half eye-rolling <laughs> as we spoke oh, about no. that chapter. What did you feel about it? I might be in the minority here. It's no, okay. I am definitely in the minority here. I just felt – I also listened to the audiobook, so it might be different. Oh, definitely. <laughs> so Honey was saying that she, like, didn't enjoy the experiences of when the audiobook person was reading out the sex scenes. It was the flirting. <laughs> no, absolutely. I was like – no, like, don't get me wrong. It was very meet cute, very classic rom-com-like. But then, like, hearing them flirt with each other, I was just like – there was a bit of an ick. I was a little 100%. Bit, like, yeah. But I think maybe if I read it, it wouldn't have been as bad as in, like, just no, I without think, an audiobook. I actually think the difference might be audiobook versus normal book because I think you put your own spin yes. on dialogue when it's just when you're just reading it I don't want someone to translate it for me how they perceive it <laughs> yeah. I want to be the one to yeah, do that exactly. and in that sense I perceived the dialogue to be quite dry mm. and wry mm. and witty and funny and I don't know with a lot of energy like unspoken energy yes. but if people are like <laughs> I don't know what that was. The TV adaption have got to nail this though. Yes. They might yes. ruin it for us. If that opening scene is not good, we might struggle. I do have to say, I read an interview with Coco. I think it was in Stylist Magazine where she said, I saw one review that said they couldn't make it past the first chapter because it was so cheesy. I wish they had because that frothy first chapter works to set up an expectation of a rom-com that then flips. Really, mm. it's about the darkness beneath that glittering facade. And I thought that was so, I mean, yes. I know she wrote the book, so she gets it <laughs> <laughs> but I thought that was bang on. Just to expand on that, the dialogue in this book is some of the strongest dialogue I've read in a really long time. Yeah, which agreed. is impressive for a, a debut novelist. Yeah, I did not cringe once, I don't think, when I was reading this book. Back to that quote that you read from Coco. I read that as well and I loved it. And it was funny because in real time when I was reading this book, I read the first chapter and then when I realised that Coco was skimming over like the honeymoon period before they got <laughs> married, I was like a little bit mad. I was no, so annoyed. Yeah, I don't I agree. Was like, I, I really? more cute stuff. <laughs> I don't agree agree because I just feel like a lot of like movies about love and relationships like really emphasize that honeymoon phase and then it just ends at the altar and marriage is the yeah. end and yes because it's easier for all of us <laughs> I think after reading the whole book I 100% back that decision no but Annabelle I had it's so funny you say that I had exactly the same thought because I think the prologue finished and they were talking about maybe like randomly going on a trip together so I excitedly <laughs> opened the next page because I'm like where are they gonna be and it's like they're married and I was like no. <laughs> like I felt robbed yeah they're married and like she's already starting to have doubts kind yes. of like she's like mm, green card yeah, yeah, <laughs> and yeah. I'm like no no it was the other stuff before yeah. that no 1000% as we've already mentioned when it comes to Eleanor like she did land in the book like a total slap mm. and I think her vignettes were were the strongest part of the book for me her section had some of the most beautiful writing the most beautiful observations it felt like it was filled with the most substance and love which I think is also the point because she was probably the character that was meant to be filled with the most substance and love I kind of want to read two different sections is that okay please, from her please. because 
They I just just really beautiful stuff. You know, when you read a novel and you're like, oh, that's beautiful. But also I should take that into my own life. Like this is mm. not nonfiction, but sometimes I find fiction better than self-help. I yeah. don't know yeah, in I many agree. ways. So there is a passage on page 328. The rabbi called, Levi says, he wants to know why we're not sitting a week of shiver. What business is it of his? I say, I will deal with it, says my mother. What are you going to say? Asked Levi. I'm going to say, who has the energy for all that sitting? She says. What if he disagrees? I ask. My mother shrugs. So what? That's it, says Levi. 10 years of Hebrew school and it comes down to that. So what? Let me tell you something, says my mother. Those are two of the most powerful words in the English language. Right between them is a free and happy life. And I was like, oh, I love that. I need to say that more often. That is a sage piece of advice. Yeah. I don't think I've ever said, so what? <laughs> when I don't think I've ever said it either. And I was like, we're introducing that. We're saying, so what more? Mm. On that theme, the other passage that I wanted to read to you is only like seven pages down the line. It's on 335. And it's a conversation between Eleanor and the rabbi. And it goes like this. The rabbi is leaving when I tap his elbow gently. What would I say, I ask, if I wanted to, you know, pray? Two of my mother's synagogue friends eye me jealously from across the room. I would die if anyone overheard this conversation. Well, there are books, but you can also just say what's in your heart. Say what feels right to you. But where would I even start? Oh, you can start very simple, he says. Two of my favorite prayers are help me and thank you. Those are prayers? Those are excellent prayers. He smiles and begins to retreat and then turns back to me one more time. You want to know one of my personal favorite prayers? What? Wow, he says. And I was like, I don't do that enough either. Like I don't just sit in awe or wow. And again, I'm like, that stuff's just beautiful. Whether it's central to the novel or not, like even if it was like completely irrelevant, I was like, that's just beautiful writing and a beautiful observation about the world. Yeah, like you could get that tattooed as like an inspirational (laughs) Now I'm going to get like, so what on one wrist and wow Wow. on the other. (laughs) Also, may I say, a complete aside, you read that beautifully. Oh, thank you. (laughs) I stop. No, tell me what else. What else have we got? Strengths, weaknesses, Sahani. Take whatever you've got. I think it was like the juxtapositions between the mother-daughter, so mother-child relationships. Like mm. we were talking about Eleanor and her mom. Yeah, they're so cute. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, and like they also have their ups and downs, but like it's nothing compared to Cleo and Frank's relationship with their mothers. And it's they kind of touch on it at the end when Cleo and Frank are talking about how Eleanor is so loved, and they didn't have that growing up, and like the importance of nurturing. Yeah. And I really liked, I don't have the passage, but it's about how they take home Jesus. The Is it a bat? What is it? it? I, it's <laughs> a, a squirrel, kind of? A small squirrel. I remember I had to look it up. I was looking it up and I was like, oh, this is not at all what I thought it was going to look like. Yeah, I yeah. guess it's like a rodent. It's What is it? A sliding thing. Yeah, a weird pet. <laughs> yeah, let's call it a weird pet. But I think that was a metaphor for Cleo, right? Because they couldn't. he couldn't nurture her. Yes, yeah, so okay. And he accidentally her. hurts her yeah. because of his drunken behavior. And I thought, like, that's just so reflective of, like, the way he wasn't looked after as well. Like, he was just bound to do that in his next relationships, hurt people. Yeah. And, yeah, it was just really moving. (laughs) What did you guys make of that sentiment at the end where they were saying that someone who is a natural nurturer because of their upbringing belongs with someone who needs nurturing? Yeah. Well, I know for a fact you hate that. (laughs) Because you said that in the past. We we, we have had this conversation in the past. No, I don't blankly hate that. It seems so one note. For sure. Mm. But I have heard this from people in my life that I care 
care about and I care about their opinion, that they feel that this is true. Yeah. And I just wonder, because I don't have, I think, enough life experience to be able to know really who belongs with who. But I just like found that really fascinating. Is this the case for a lot of couples that one person tends to nurture the other and the other person tends to need more nurturing? Well, like, yes, I think that's true. I think it's like there will always be a person in a relationship that needs more nurturing. But can you like nail it down to their upbringing and that the fact that one person was nurtured more than the other when yeah. they were growing up. I don't know if it's that simple. But it works in a, a novel. <laughs> yes, yeah. it's, yeah. it does work in a novel. I think I have to be honest about my weaknesses in this book because I haven't really said many, is I really struggled after the prologue before about page 100. Mm. I was like, oh gosh, I, I've read so many good reviews for this book. I'm battling I feel a bit at odds with everybody else's opinion. I got a bit bored Mm. and I kind of didn't care enough about Frank and Cleo and their relationship. And then we got to the scene where Cleo and Frank met Cleo's dad and her stepmom, Miriam. And I just sat up. I thought it was funny. I thought (laughs) Miriam was hilarious. Miriam is so funny. I felt she was like more of a caricature than a person. Absolutely. Like, it was just very like, it was like I was reading satire. Yes, you you <laughs> think you're, re- it's like you're reading a parody, like a, like a Dave, did you ever watch The Office? Like a David Brent character <laughs> yeah. or something like that. So there is kind of a long passage I want to read from Miriam because I just think also Coco should be commended for how funny her writing was yes. too. And this is from that lunch. Tell them what that man said, repeated Peter. Well, at the end of this workshop, the CEO of the company comes up to me and I'm telling you, this man is richer than God. And do you know what he says? Miriam, he says, I have travelled all over the world, meeting some of the world's most influential thought leaders. I've ever met the Dalai Lama, for Christ's sake, but you have changed my life more than anyone I've ever met. Miriam, he said, you are the first real genius I've ever met. (laughs) She paused to look first at Frank and then Cleo in the eyes to ensure that they could feel the impact of her words. And do you know what I said to him? I said, Lou, that was his name, Lou. I'm no genius. I'm no world leader. I am merely a humble fellow traveler. And I am so honored to be on this journey with you. They invited her back twice next year, says Peter. Frank was afraid to look at Cleo in case he burst out laughing. Cleo, on the other hand, was having a fantasy of reaching across the table and delivering Miriam a sharp slap to the face. But if her childhood had taught her anything, it was to do the opposite of what she felt. Sounds like they're lucky to have you, she said. It was the best thing we ever did, nodded Peter. I am the lucky one, said Miriam, (laughs) fanning her face with her hand, to be given the opportunity to freely help another human being. So these workshops are free, said Frank. Well, no, she said, (laughs) but it's not about the money. How much do they cost then? Their value can't really be quantified in money. They're very expensive, said Peter, but worth it. Peter, said Miriam, shushing him, we give a lot more than we receive. And I just thought it was like fucking perfect. Like it was incredible. And that scene, I was like, I'm back. I'm so back in this book. Miriam yeah. is the best. I love her. Your storytelling, Zara. I know I keep doing this. I was like looking at your camera. I was like, we need to cut this into a video to show people how you read that out. Don't embarrass me. Captivating. But yeah, I love how Cleo was so well rehearsed in like what she needed to say to not mm. cause any like drama. To get through it. And we've all been there. We've yeah. all had conversations with people that like, you're like, oh, I just don't like this but I'm gonna have to say something to egg them on <laughs> yeah whereas Frank's like the new player in that scenario so he's like outraged or like didn't know what to do yeah I have one weakness before we finish I agree with that one that you just said Zara I kind of felt like the book lulled a little bit from after the first chapter to around that point but then it picked up and I was like this is great my other weakness was that I felt like the 
relationship between Cleo and Anders, who we haven't mentioned oh yet. Oh my God. Really so true. sped up so quickly. And that may have been just like indicative of how unhappy Cleo was in her mm. relationship with Frank. That's probably what it was. But personally, just like from a reader's perspective, I got confused when Cleo and Anders slept together for the second time later on in the book. I was like, is this a flashback to the first is time? Is this a dream? Oh, yes. Or are the they, are they currently having an affair? <laughs> like yeah. I was so confused. And then it all just sped up and then like he loved her. <laughs> I was just like, what's going on here? I completely agree. Especially because the first time that they had sex, she reflects on it as like a feeling of giving in to lust and like not like enjoying Mm. it or anything like that. So I was quite taken aback the second time they got together because I was like, oh, like where did this come from? There was no hinting at it. There was no, and yeah, the Anders like falling in love with her. And then there was a really graphic scene. Yes, I despised that scene mm. so much. It made me so uncomfortable. I just didn't know what to make of it. Yeah. And I, truthfully, I think I was a bit thrown in the whole scene leading up to that because Anders is sitting there with his, I guess we call him his stepson. Mm. And the way the stepson was talking about his girlfriend. Mm. Yeah. And I was like, young men are crude, right? And rude and all of those kinds of things. But do they talk about women like this with their stepdad? That mm. scene was like one of the most uncomfortable things I've ever read. That then followed by Anders going into the bathroom and like, what was he imagining doing terrible things to Cleo? Is that what I was like? This is just disgusting. Yeah, it was quite jarring to yeah. say the least. For sure. Yeah, and I'm actually, it's funny that it's taken us like 40 minutes to even get to Anders. I forgot about it. Yes, maybe quite forgettable. Like in the grand scheme of things, seems like more of a key character in the book than he actually ends up being. Mm. I think it is time to get your ratings. Sahani, I am going to start with you. No. No. (laughs) You simply have to. (laughs) Tell me out of five, what do you rate the book? I'm going to give it a four. Yeah, nice. Wait, four and a half. Yeah, ooh. Yeah, because it started off as a three, but then the more I thought about it, the more I was quite impressed with how she was able to cover so much ground yeah. so well. Yeah, I'm giving it a four and a half. I'm giving it a four. Yes. I would recommend this book to a lot of my friends. I think a lot of my friends would love this, but perhaps a smidge too dark for me. Okay. Yeah, there were themes in there that I was like, Oh God, this happened very suddenly and I was a bit caught off guard. Yeah, fair call. It is one of the, it's actually maybe one of the first books I've read where I thought, I think maybe some people might need a trigger warning. Yes. And then I thought, and then obviously my mind started going to those places where what do you think about trigger warnings on novels? Because novels have to have that element of surprise or else, you know, how else do you tell a story and get people into a world where they don't know where they're going? But it was one of the first times where I thought, I do wonder if some people would have needed a trigger warning for this because it does jump out of the page quite aggressively at you. Yeah, like the writing was beautiful and I think everything was very well written, but not a lot of those graphic scenes were left to your imagination. It was all kind of very explicitly told. Yes, I agree with that. I am giving it a four and a half. Sahani, I am so similar to you. It was probably a three in those first 100 pages Mm -hmm. and then probably a five at the end. So (laughs) the average is not... Four and a half. Matter because I've also I also tend to rate the books as well on how much joy I feel having a conversation about it and mm. I loved prepping this I loved having this conversation it was like a beautiful book to unpack so it's a four and a half from me yay and the cover gorge oh yes. so arty I think that's also half the reason actually not half the reason the small reason why it's going so viral is because everybody's putting this on their Instagram yeah. story but that is all we've got time for guys thank you so much for listening to our November installment of the Shameless Book Club. Next month, we are reading You Made a Fool of Death with Your Beauty by Akweke Amezi. Now, I have actually read this one. I recommended it on the show a couple of months ago and wondered, could this be the romance book 
that Michelle actually likes. <gasps> Could be the romance book that Annabelle and Michelle both agree on. That's my challenge for well, the next month. I will definitely love it then because oh, we'll I love see. all romance we books. We will see. Annabelle, would you read me a snippet from the blurb? Of course. Faye wants to learn how to be alive again. It's been five years since the accident that killed the love of her life and she's almost a new person now. An artist with her own studio and sharing a brownstone apartment with her ride-or-die best friend, Joy, who insists it's time for her to ease back into the dating scene. She isn't ready for anything serious, but a steamy encounter at a rooftop party cascades into a whirlwind summer she could have never imagined. A luxury trip to a tropical island, decadent meals in the glamorous home of a celebrity chef, and a major curator who wants to launch her art career. That sounds like one hell of a book. I can't wait to chat to you about it before we get there. Though. Sahani, thank you so much for joining us today. Can't wait to have you back if you want to come back. <laughs> no pressure. <laughs> no, I had so much fun. It's fun. Book Club is fun. So yeah. let's get you back next year. Let us know what books you want to read and you can just jump on this table. Guys, we cannot wait to chat to you for next month's book please make sure you read along with us. Go grab the book from your local bookstore and tell us your thoughts. Until then, come and follow us on Instagram at The Shameless Book Club or search the same username on TikTok. That is all from us. We'll be back in your ears on Monday. Bye. Bye. Shameless Media. This podcast was recorded on Wurundjeri land. Always was, always will be Aboriginal land. Hello guys, Mish here. I am the co-founder of Shameless Media. Thank you so much for giving us your ears and your mind and your time. We're so grateful. If you enjoy the stuff that we produce, may I recommend our brand new podcast, Style-ish Stylish, if you want to say it quickly. Style-ish, if you want to take the long way through. It is our podcast for all things fashion, brand, business, and beauty. If that is in your wheelhouse, if you care about style content, you will love this show. It is, of course, more than just a show as well. It is a newsletter. It is an Instagram feed. It is a TikTok account. There is so much good stuff going out on Stylish every single day starting now. So in your favorite app, search for Style-ish. Give it a listen. Give it a follow. We are an independent media company and we would be so, so grateful for all your support. That's all for me, guys. Check out Stylish and have a good one.